Good morning, and a warm welcome to you all this morning to our service of worship at Ladywell Baptist Church. It's great to begin our week with worship as we come before God with song and in prayer and come before God's Word. And we'll also spend some time this morning celebrating around the table in communion. And I want to give you the chance maybe to pause the video and uh, get uh, things ready for that if you would like to participate in communion uh, towards the end of our service. As we begin this new week, just a reminder to you of uh, the events that are on Monday evening, half past seven, we have our drop-in cafe on Zoom, and on Wednesday evening at half past seven, our prayer meeting, which this week is going to be led by Douglas Scott. Again, half past seven on Zoom, and if you'd like to know more about that, then please do get in touch with us. As we begin our time this morning, though, we want to focus ourselves on what we are here to do, what we've gathered to do at the beginning of this week. And so we hear these words from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let's pray together. Our loving God, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you that we are able to come into your presence through the work of Jesus, who has died for our sins, who is raised to new life, that we might be raised up with him. And Lord God, we are now made able to come into your presence, to sing your praises, to come before you in prayer, to hear from your word and be transformed by it, all through that work of Jesus on our behalf. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for that. And we ask as we gather in this time this morning that you would bless us with a knowledge of your presence. Lord, we pray for all those who are not able to gather even in this way remotely. Lord, we ask that you would bless them, that they would know you are with them, that you are still their God and Savior. For all they are not able to gather uh, Sunday by Sunday in the presence of their brothers and sisters. Lord God, we pray that as we begin this time of worship, that you would, Lord, make us aware keenly of our sinfulness. Lord, that you would also make us aware of our forgiveness in Christ, that there is now no condemnation for us, but there is also no barrier between us and you. We are able to enter into your presence and worship you truly in this time. And so, Lord, we pray, draw us in. Have us lift our voices and hearts to you. Have us humbly submit to your word. And Lord, in everything, may we know that we meet with you in this time. Lord God, we ask all this in our Savior's precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week's reading is from Genesis eighteen twenty-two to nineteen eleven. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, 
so that the righteous fear as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early, and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him, and entered his house. And he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known them any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, and brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Let's come before God in prayer for our church and for our world. Living God, you are the author of life and of salvation. Lord, you are the one who caused us to be and calls us into your presence through the blood of your Son shed on our behalf. And as we come to worship this morning, Lord, we come giving you thanks for our salvation, but also acknowledging your power over every area of life and over every part of this world. And so, Lord, we lift our fellowship before you this morning and ask that you might bless the members of this church with the knowledge of your presence. But, Lord, you might also bless our members with a knowledge that you meet their every need. You give them every breath. Lord, you supply them with food and with drink, with clothes, with family and friends. Lord, we owe everything to you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would lead us on in our worship of you, acknowledging your provision for us in every area of life. Lord God, we pray especially for those in our fellowship who are struggling, who are sick, 
Lord, who are feeling isolated and lonely. Lord, may they know your presence. May they know your healing power. Lord, may you restore to them the joy of their salvation. Lord, we pray for our community here in Livingston, and we ask that you would bring comfort where it is needed at this time. Lord, for the family members of those who are in hospital, for those who are bereaved, Lord, we pray that you would bring a knowledge not just of your presence, but of the saving work of Jesus. Lord, that people all over this town who are struggling at their hour of greatest need might know the Savior who comes to them to transform their lives. Heavenly Father, we pray for the work of this church as we seek to go out into this community and indeed the rest of the world and make the work of Jesus known. We ask that you would strengthen us and equip us to that task. Lord God, we ask that you would come to us at this difficult time and help us, Lord, that we might know how best to engage with those around us in greatest need and bless them and encourage them. Lord God, we pray also for our world. There are many difficulties we've seen in the news over this past week. There is much strife in the United States and spilling over into the UK, racial tensions, Lord, and difficult circumstances. We pray, Lord, that you might intervene and bring peace. We ask, Lord, more that through your church, you would bring a whole group of people, a vast number of people who have been encouraged by Jesus to go into the world as peacemakers, Lord, that your church might speak into this situation, might bring a sense of calm, a sense of proportion. Lord, might seek to bring peace between peoples who know nothing of it. Lord God, we ask in all things that you might make your presence known in this world. For you are the God who brings reconciliation to those who are at war. Lord God, we pray that as we gather before you this week, that we would know your presence and so would be made ready to go into the coming week prepared for life, for worship, for service. For in all things, Lord, we would honor and glorify your name for your great goodness to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless us in this time. And, Lord, we ask it all in our Savior's perfect, powerful, and righteous name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've seen, like me, I'm sure, over this past week, a difficult situation go from bad to worse. In the United States, a police officer arresting someone uh, has treated him in such a way it's resulted in the man's death. The police officer is white. The man being arrested was black. The other police officers around did nothing to, um, to help the man, and his death ensued, which has sparked huge riots, which has resulted in not just protest, but in uh, the setting alight of buildings, of businesses, people uh, fighting against the police, the threat of uh, the armed forces being used to uh, disperse crowds. And not only has this um, blown up in the United States, it's spilled over into the UK where there have been protests and in some case the, um, the verbal and attempted physical abusing of police officers. 
It's a tremendously difficult situation. And in the midst of all of this, we as, as Christians are expected to go into the world with a message of hope saying that God knows all. God is in control. And it can be a huge challenge for us to ask, where is God in all of that? It's not just a theoretical question, though, is it? It's questions like that that can cause us to struggle with our own faith. Where on earth is God in all of that? How can I trust in a God who says he will save me when that situation is unfolding in all of its complexity and there doesn't seem to be any solution to this problem? It's not all that long since we've had exactly the same episode played out in the United States. And we can name a number of other times when more or less precisely the same thing has happened. As we come to this issue and as we seek to share the gospel with others and engage our faith with the lives that we lead, we do struggle with these things. The problem of evil in the world. The question of why God isn't doing something about it. And yet, when we see these problems, we forget that dealing with evil isn't simply accomplished by punishing evildoers, although that's a necessary part of God's process, as we'll go on and see. There's much more to God's plan to address evil than simply punishing those responsible for it. We're going to spend some time in Genesis chapters 18 and 19 together this morning, dealing with some very difficult parts of Scripture. These two chapters will help us see that God is indeed in control even when terrible things are going on and that he will always do what is right. And in doing what is right, we will see an increase in our faith, our confidence in him, leading to us trusting in him more and leading to us obeying him more faithfully day by day. And so we come to Genesis chapter 18 and we find uh, the events of a very familiar part of scripture, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, to the sins of the people of that place and to God's destruction of it. And in understanding these two chapters, we put uh, into context, I think, the days that we live in today and our faith also. What we find in Genesis chapter 18 is that even in a world that is wholly consumed by sin, God's blessings are still rich. Even in this world where a place like Sodom and Gomorrah can exist, we are told that God appears to Abraham while he's by the oaks of Mamre and speaks. We're told that three men appear before Abraham. These three men speak and they speak on behalf of God in the first person. I don't think we should necessarily see any allusion to the Trinity necessarily in the fact that there are three men that come and speak to Abraham. We're told later in this passage that these men are angels, messengers speaking on behalf of God. But while the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that we'll come to in just a moment is going on, God is still active in the life of his servant Abraham, still speaking, still present, still involved. And Abraham recognizes them as God's representatives and he treats them as such. O Lord, he says, as he addresses them in verse 3, and quickly has a meal prepared, refreshments brought for them. And they inquire about Sarah and they inquire about um, Abraham and, and tell Abraham that she will have a son before the year is out. And Sarah laughs 
Privately, we remember as we've gone through this section in Genesis that God has promised Abraham and Sarah that they will have a son of their own, not an adopted son, but their own son. And this son will be the one through whom God delivers the promises of God to Abraham's people and to the world as a result. And we find Sarah laughing at this reminder through these angels that they're going to have a son. She simply can't believe it. She is incredulous that this will happen. In her own words, she is old and worn out. So this simply cannot be. Now we know looking back that this son will come and his name will be Isaac, which means laughter. And that name picks up on the previous section we looked at in Genesis where Abraham laughs in incredulity that he will have a son in his old age. The name is referring to Sarah's laughter, that she will have a son in her old age. But I think it also speaks of the joy of God at the carrying out of his own plan, his own joy-filled laughter that a son will come and will carry on this line that will result in the Savior of the world, of Jesus coming to be the great blessing to the nations. And through this gracious gift to this childless couple, this miraculous birth, we know Jesus does come. He is the seed of the woman that God promises Adam and Eve in Genesis, who will bring salvation to the world that will crush the head of Satan and defeat evil in this world in ways unimaginable to Abraham and Sarah. And so the promises of God to them will be fulfilled perfectly, completely. The passage continues, these men uh, talk about the birth of Isaac and they say they're going down into Sodom and Gomorrah to see the evil that is there and bring God's judgment to bear upon them. God is aware, he knows of the evil in that place. Even as he's working out his plan of salvation, he sees and understands the evil going on in the world. And this causes Abraham a problem. Abraham's problem is, in a sense, the opposite of our problem. We look at the sin in the world and say, why is God not doing anything about it? Abraham looks at the sin in the world and fears that God will do too much about it. He knows that God will not stand uh, this injustice being carried out in these two cities. And we're going to go on shortly and see what that great sinfulness injustice is. And he understands that God will destroy the place completely for its sin and worries that there may be innocent people in those cities. And so he sort of goes back and forth with God, questioning God, will you destroy the city if there are even 50 sinless people, innocent people in it? And God says, I won't destroy the city. Well, how about 45? How about 40? 30? 20, 10, and the Lord assures him at every step, if there are innocent people in the city, it will not be destroyed. His justice will completely be worked out, but only the guilty will perish. Now, to skip ahead a little, we see uh, that God means, and Abraham understands, that if there is even one innocent person, the whole place will be spared as a result. When destruction comes, we find that God brings destruction not just to Sodom and not just to Gomorrah, but to the entire valley those two cities are in. He destroys the whole place as a result of the wickedness of those people, bar one city, and that city is Zoar. And the reason that the city of Zoar is not destroyed is, as we'll go on and see, 
that Abraham's nephew Lot is in that city. And Lot, although he is far from perfect, hasn't participated in the wickedness, the sin of the cities in that valley. And so because of his innocence, a whole city and all its inhabitants are spared. God is being true to his word. So even in the midst of addressing evil, of judging evil in the world, God is still pouring out his blessings upon a people who don't deserve it. Because of the innocence of one person. He pours out his love, his mercy and his grace into the world so that evil and depravity are judged but are also diluted, weakened and lessened in their impact and reach. The inhabitants of Zoar almost certainly deserved justice, judgment, destruction. And yet God preserved them because of the innocence of Lot weakening the evil in the world, even as he judges it further up the valley. And this has two important implications for us as Christian people. First, in our own lives, in our own personal struggle with sin, we often focus on one or two big things that we never seem to have much struggle, much success, sorry, in dealing with. And we base our entire salvation on success in those areas of our lives. We're not perfect and therefore we feel that we aren't Christians yet. We're not deserving of God's love. And yet, this is not the kind of perfection that God calls us to have. Because he knows we cannot ever be perfect in that way. For all that we might stamp out sin in one area of life, there will be some other area where it bubbles up again. For all that we might address it for a time, the problem will return. We never perfectly deal with our struggle with sin. The perfection God requires of us is the perfection of having Christ sitting on the throne of our hearts. For he is truly perfect, is truly innocent. And as Lot sits in Zoar, and so Zoar is spared because of his presence, we find that as Christ is seated in the midst of our hearts, so we are spared because of his presence. We'll go on struggling with sin, even after we've asked Christ for his forgiveness. Even as we'll go on and see in our service when we celebrate communion around the table, even though his blood washes us clean, his body is broken in payment for our sins. We still struggle with sin. And yet, because he is present in the midst of our hearts, so we know the grace, the mercy of God. Christ's presence drives out sin because he is holy and he causes us to hate sin more and more over time. We are saved because Christ has taken up residence within us and that spares us from destruction. How wonderful is that to know that God will never reject you because of his son who he has sent into your life to bring transformation that he promises will never leave you or forsake you so that however much you struggle, you will always know the salvation of God for Christ is resident within you. The second implication for us is in the way that we deal with the world. Our natural inclination is to look at the sin in our life and in trying to address it and seeing the failures we have, to look out and see the sins of others and point them out so that, in a sense, we may distract ourselves and distract God from the sin that resides within us. Look at how much more sinful they are over there. Surely you should be dealing with them more than you should be dealing with us. 
And the consequence of this is a lingering effect of sin in our lives. We make our sins seem smaller and less troublesome and so feel no need to have them addressed while we see the terrible sins of other people and we feel safe because we aren't tempted and and fail in the way that they are. And yet when we understand this passage in light of Christ, we see that our place is not to condemn sin in other people. Certainly it is our place to point out sin in others but not to condemn them for it, to make them aware that there is a Savior who can perfectly address their problem as he has addressed the problem in our lives. We find that Christ has come for sinful people. He's come as a physician, as we read in the Gospels, to those who are sick, just as the sick need to go to a doctor. And we've been reminded about that during lockdown, haven't we? That many people haven't been going to the doctor and the NHS is very worried for the health of a great number of people in our nation who they know will be sick, but aren't going to their GP, aren't going to hospital because they don't want to burden their doctor or they don't want to catch coronavirus, but they need medical help. The sick need to go to a doctor to have their problems addressed. And so it is with Jesus. We can't hold back from coming to Christ because we feel we are not as bad as other people. We must come to Christ and have our sins addressed, but we must point those others to the Savior who can address their problem of sin. That's what he has come to do, to take up residence in their heart, that they might be spared through his presence. And this ultimately brings transformation not just to an individual or to a people, but a whole nation as a vast number of people are made aware of the transforming power of the presence of Christ. If we doubt this can happen, we only need to read the history of our own nation. In the early centuries of the church, missionaries were sent to Britain, and it took them a long time to see Britain transformed by the power of the gospel. And although it was imperfect, and although it was um, slow, we found that process did bring great transformation so that Britain, over its history in the last 2,000 years, has become a place that is shaped and molded by the power of the gospel, has had Christ at its heart. Not perfectly, and not perhaps for long, but for a time. In Scotland, the same thing happened during the Reformation. The whole nation was transformed through the presence of Christ, borne out by the the faithful witnessing to the gospel by men like Wishart and Knox, and our nation was transformed as individuals were transformed. The judge of all the earth will do right by pouring out his blessings into a sinful world that doesn't deserve it through his people, through the work of his son, by the power of his Holy Spirit. So we don't need to doubt God in difficult times. We find also that even in a sinful world, as we move into chapter 19, that God's salvation is fruitful. We find that Lot is dwelling in the city of Sodom. And as these angels come uh, to Sodom to see what has uh, become of this place, Lot sees them and rises to meet them and welcomes them into his home. We find in doing that that they're going to stay for a time and then intend to sleep in the square, which is a, a practice not uncommon at the time. And Lot's concerned for them. He knows that something will happen to them if they stay out in the open like that. 
and he seeks to convince them to stay in his home. Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet and then rise early and go on your way. And he implores them to stay because if they stay in the village, he knows that the men of that city will go out and lay hold of them. And as we read chapter 19, we find that the city has become this place that um, it is focused very much on um, lust and on sexual fulfillment. And we find that the men of this city um, come to the house of Lot and desire that these three visitors with Lot be sent out so that they can sleep with them. And we find that their desire is so great that they virtually break down the, the door of the house. They're willing to forcibly take these men out of Lot's home. And Lot seeks to keep them safe as their host, as was common in that time. And we find that as a result of Lot's desire to save these men from that experience, to save them from the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, we find that salvation comes to Lot that he doesn't deserve. These men uh, seek to snatch Lot back into the house. Lot goes out to explain to the inhabitants of Sodom that this is not going to happen. In fact, Lot even goes so far as to offer members of his own family in their place so that his guests would be preserved and kept safe. But as the men of the city become increasingly frustrated, so driven uh, by lust for uh, for these men that um, they, they threaten Lot. And so the angels snatch Lot back into the house and tell Lot um, that judgment is coming, but that he will be spared and his house and all who will go with him. They strike the men of the city blind, we read in this story, and incredibly we find that even though the men have been struck blind, such is their desire, they are driven by their sinful lust to such a degree that they still wear themselves out, scrabbling to find the door into Lot's house. This is a picture of a whole city consumed by sin. And so we find Lot, in seeking to stand against it, is given salvation he doesn't deserve. It's salvation he can't acquire on his own, though. He must be led by somebody else to acquire it. And we find that Lot goes and he seeks to have his family come with him to flee the city from the destruction that is to come. But they won't come. They don't understand why he thinks this is such a big problem. And so he takes his wife and they flee. But even his wife, they've been told not to, not to look back, not to turn back to the city when they flee. But as they go, his wife turns to go back. And as God pours down his judgment from heaven, consumes Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven, she is consumed along with the cities. And only Lot is spared as he goes. It's a picture of complete destruction. And yet we find that God's salvation in the midst of utter wickedness and depravity is fruitful. Lot is spared. And so as we look at our own lives and our own situation, so we understand that even in this sinful world, God's salvation is fruitful. We look at events going on and wonder where could God be in the midst of any of this? And yet God is still at work saving sinners who do not want to know him. He brings transformation. And as we think about what salvation is, as we'll think especially around the table in communion, we understand that this is in fact the only place that salvation comes. 
Just as Jesus comes as a doctor to those who are sick, God comes to give new life to those who are dead, to those who oppose him in every way, who want nothing to do with the life that he calls us to live. It is only the dead that can be given new life. And so God comes and offers salvation that we don't deserve. And it's a salvation that we can't acquire, lay hands on, on our own. It must be given by someone else. Someone must lead us through it. And that person, again, is Jesus, the ultimate son of Abraham, whose presence brings transformation. And so we find we are led out of a sinful world as Lot is led out of Sodom and Gomorrah, even in the midst of the most dire sinful circumstances. Now again, it's easy for us to finger point, to look back at Sodom and Gomorrah. They're famous for homosexual lust, as these men are are gripped by in this city, and to look at that and to tut and condemn and to fail to see our own need of salvation, our own deadness because of the sin in our lives. But we all, each one of us who are Christians, bear witness to the fact that salvation is indeed fruitful in the lives of a sinful people, surrounded by a world that is mired in its sin, because Christ came and saved us. And so we're able to bring that same great message of hope, of salvation, even into this difficult time where there are so many problems in our society, so many people who say, where is God? And we are able to answer that question. God has come to me and brought transformation to my life. God can come to you and bring transformation to your life, even in the midst of all that we're experiencing right now. Because let's face it, We're facing difficulty, whether it might be through coronavirus or through racial tensions that have begun in America and have spilled into the UK. But is there ever a day when something like that isn't happening? Is there ever a day when there isn't strife and division and war and famine and drought and plague and and tensions within a country politically or or racially or, or in terms of gender or identity or whatever it might be? There is always a war. There is always a disaster. There is always somebody asking, where is God? And there is always an answer. God is with us when we call upon his name and call out for salvation. And so we are able to know the fruitfulness of God in salvation, but to share that same message of hope, even in this time when we're asking, where is God in the midst of all of this? And so we find towards the end of chapter 19, that even in a sinful world, as much as God's blessing is poured out, as much as God's salvation is fruitful, we find that God's judgment will also be complete. We find um, in this story, the temptation is to look at the injustice and turmoil in the world and ask, you know, why isn't God doing something about this? Why doesn't God bring judgment? And we look at this story and wonder how God could have allowed these circumstances to have come about. And yet we find in Romans an answer to that question. God gives people the desires of their heart. If people want to, to turn their back on him and live completely consumed by sin, then God not only gives them that desire, in a sense, he also gives them the fruit of that desire, the fruit of those actions, which is chaos, death, 
destruction, misery, pain. He allows it all to unfold. And yet when people turn to him and ask for forgiveness, he gives them the fruit of that desire. Blessing and joy, salvation, provision, and and so on. And so it is here. Sodom and Gomorrah have been given over to the sin, the desires of their own heart. And yet, as we look at them and wonder, how could God have allowed this? We see God comes and doesn't just address the problem. He does so emphatically. In this passage, we see that God doesn't just deal with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroys the entire valley. The only place that is spared is Zoar, where Lot has fled to as he goes from Sodom. And you can imagine seeing that scene as you stand over the valley and just see this whole, the entire valley reduced to a burning, smoking ruin where once prosperous, wealthy cities flourished and traded and and so on. And we sometimes, in reading of this, immediately flit over. We've started from this place of wondering, why on earth does God not bring judgment? And then we see this and wonder how God could be so harsh in his judgment. And yet, God does bring perfect and complete judgment for sin. There will never be a sin in this world that will go unanswered. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that had been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now there are a couple of implications for this as Paul simply rephrases what we see in Genesis 18 and 19. And the first is personal. The first is perhaps the most challenging from this passage. If you are not a Christian and listening to this, there is no possibility that God will simply wink at sin in your life, that you're an all right chap and so everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. I'll let you by, although it's only been a few problems, it'll be okay. There is no hint in Scripture that God will allow one sin to go unpunished. And God's punishment of sin will be emphatic, it will be complete, it will be utterly devastating. The second implication of this is for our town our nation, and for our world, when we see sin run amok in any place. And it's perhaps slightly more encouraging that sin will not go unanswered in these places, that God will bring judgment. Our demand is always that judgment be brought here and now, that people must be punished. Just this week, there's been a a new interest in the case of Madeleine McCann, where a new suspect has been brought to light in Germany. And immediately the press runs into a frenzy. We demand justice now. 
And it's right that justice comes for whatever happened to that poor little girl. And yet, as Christians, we have confidence of knowing that even if nobody is brought to human justice, the judge of all the earth will do right, that judgment will fall upon that person, whoever it is that took that little girl and perhaps killed her. We don't know. Judgment will come. Justice will be poured out, and it will be utterly devastating, truly complete. But we also see that God's judgment is being poured out here and now. The riots that you see in the U.S. are a sign of God's judgment on a country that has turned its back upon God. Unless we point the finger and tut at other nations, the same is true of our nation here in the U.K. When we see the way our country is sliding into decline, families are breaking up, society is disintegrating. This is the judgment of God upon a people who want nothing to do with him. And so he's giving our nation over to us in our sinfulness. But there is also a flip side to all of this. Our confidence is in knowing that while God will judge sin in complete holiness, he will not allow a single sin to go unanswered for. That in Christ, Paul says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who know Jesus. And the reason there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ is because Christ has paid for every one of our sins who are in him. So as we are made aware of our sin and as we cast ourselves at the feet of Christ and ask for his forgiveness, every sin is paid for. And so God will not judge us. God will spare us through judgment and will preserve us for glory in eternity with him. And our courage in knowing that, that we are being spared for that future glory is in knowing that God will not leave one sin unanswered for. There is no possibility that we have cast ourselves upon Christ and then we'll stand before him on judgment day and we will hear God say, well, I'm sorry, but there was that one thing in your life that you never addressed, that you could never deal with. And so I'm sorry, you have no place with me. I don't know you depart from me. There is no chance that will happen if you know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. So go with courage into the coming week, knowing that if you have trusted in Christ, sin is dead and you are free. But go buoyed up knowing that you have that same message of hope to bring to the world. That anyone can know that same freedom and forgiveness that you know because Christ can be their perfect saviour. Do we have confidence in the God that we love and worship and obey, even as we see so many things going on in the world at the time, at this time that make us perhaps doubt that he is active, that he is doing anything that is good and right while the world seems to fall to bits. When we only look at the world and its fallen state, we might be caused to doubt, to be frustrated. And yet when we look at what God has said in his word, we are given complete confidence and courage that he is in control. He will bring, bring blessing to turn back evil. He will bring salvation to spare a people forever. He will bring his justice to bear here and now and on into the future. We have no cause for worry. We have no cause for depression, distress, or alarm because God is in control. So let us follow where he goes. Let us obey where he commands. Let us work out our calling with fear and with trembling, but with courage, confidence, and joy. 
For God knows where he is leading us and has empowered us and equipped us to that end. The judge of all the earth will do right. So walk in courage and confidence this week. Amen. As we come now to celebrate around the table in communion, I want to give you an opportunity just to perhaps pause the video and, uh, and to get the bread and the cup uh, in order so that we're able to eat and drink all together as one family. If you're not familiar with communion, with what it is, it's an opportunity for Christian people, wherever we are from, whichever church we belong to, uh, to remember together the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and to celebrate all that that death and resurrection has done for us in transforming our lives and in making us alive together to know God and to worship him. As we begin this time together, we hear these words of Paul in Romans chapter 5 that speak of all that we celebrate in this time. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we will also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amazing words to hear that we've been reconciled to God. We were enemies with God as a result of the sin in our lives that we've known since birth, that we could do nothing about. And God sending Jesus to die, to pay for our sins, draws us in and reconciles us, makes us right with him. And in doing so, doesn't just change our outlook, our view on life, changes our whole way of life, that we can live day by day rejoicing knowing joy as a result of this transformation that has been brought to us, knowing that death for us has now been transformed, it no longer holds any fear for us, for through death and out the other side, we have life, life in all its abundance with God, that we might glorify him now and forever. And so I want to encourage you as we go through this time of lockdown and all of the frustrations we might experience in this time, that we go through it with a God who wants us to rejoice. For in every moment, however difficult, we who have been transformed by Christ are reconciled to him. We know his presence. 
We know his sustaining power. We are made able to worship him in every circumstance, as Paul says, even in our sufferings, which produce patience, which produce endurance, which produce character and hope. That in the end is not futile. That in the end celebrates the love of God poured into our lives, that we might know him. So let's come around the table together and eat and drink in celebration of all that God has done for us to bless us in this way. We're going to pray for the bread and the cup and then we're going to eat and drink together. If you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to participate with us. If you don't or you don't know if that describes you, then I would encourage you just to abstain from that and to get in touch with us if you want to know more about what this is about and to understand how you can come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior and know that transformation, that joy that knowing God brings. But let's pray together now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able to address you in that way, that you love us and have sent your Son to die for us even while we didn't want to know you. We were dead in our sins, and yet, Lord, you sent Christ to raise us up to new life. We wanted nothing to do with you, and yet you opened our eyes to how wonderful you are and transformed us and have given us this glorious inheritance that we might know you and love you and worship you in all of your splendor for eternity. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus was willing to go to the cross, that his body was broken, his blood shed on our behalf. And Lord, we give you thanks this morning as we eat the bread together, that it symbolizes Christ's body broken for the sake of a sinful people. Lord, we thank you as we drink the cup together that we drink it in remembrance of blood that has been shed to sprinkle us, to make us clean from our sins, that we might be fit and able to enter into your presence and to worship you in a way that is not only satisfactory to you, but is pleasing, that you are overjoyed to receive for all that we acknowledge our weakness, and all of our imperfections. Lord God, we thank you for these symbols that cause us to remember. And Lord, we ask that as we go into this new week, you would have us go on remembering all that you did, the cost that was needed to be paid, that we might know you and receive this blessing for your glory. Lord God, we ask that this remembrance would shape our every response to everything we encounter, everything we say and do and think. Lord, for we want to glorify you in all things, for this is a marvelous blessing, too great for words. And yet, Lord, we want to praise you for it. So, Father, we thank you and ask that you would bless this bread and this cup as we eat and we drink together. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks to God for it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. We'll eat the bread together as we remember Christ's body broken on our behalf.
This is the body of Christ broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink the cup and eat the bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, we drink the cup together in remembrance of Christ's blood shed on our behalf. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for these symbols of an event that happened 2,000 years ago and yet has enormous repercussions for us today. Life-transforming effects that each one of us who celebrate this together can personally testify to that our sins have been taken away and laid upon Christ and he has died for them, that his perfect life has been taken and credited to us so that when you look at us, you see his perfect life. So you are pleased to draw us into your presence. Lord God, we want to give you thanks for that. And we want to thank you not just for our fellowship here in Ladywell, but for every Christian brother and sister of ours all over this world. Lord, we particularly want to give you thanks for our brothers and sisters here in Livingston, for all those other churches who are gathering at this time to celebrate your goodness to them in becoming not just their creator, but also their savior through the work of your son. Lord God, we ask for all of these sister churches of ours that you would bless them, build them up, strengthen them, and encourage them. Lord, we pray that they might grow and increase as they rely upon you, upon your spirit, and upon your word. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them each week as they hear your word and ground themselves upon it and go out into the world to share the good news of the gospel. And Lord God, we pray for churches all over the world on this day, especially those who are facing severe persecution, simply for carrying the name of Jesus to those they know and love. Lord God, we ask that while we do not know that persecution, you would strengthen them, build them up, carry them through. And Lord God, we ask that you would bless us who are going through an easier time at the moment to find creative ways to bless our brothers and sisters all over the world, that in our plenty and in our time of relative peace, we would build up and encourage those who don't know that same experience. Lord God, we give you thanks for the immeasurable ways that you have blessed us in your Son and ask that you might bind us closer together as a church through that broken body and spilt blood. Lord God, we ask all of this, that your name might be praised, that you might be glorified, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to bring our time of worship now to a close. And as we prepare to go out into the coming week, I want you to go knowing the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may you know the grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you know the love of God and may you know the fellowship of his Holy Spirit now and forevermore. Amen.